Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Association Bar Talk Podcast. In October 2018, past Omaha Bar Association presidents Mike Mullen of QTAC Rock, Mike Kinney of Cassim Tierney Law Firm, and John Brownrigg of Brownrigg Mediation hosted a panel discussion on mediation in Nebraska. Moderating the discussion was Amy Van Horn of QTAC Rock. The CLE was done at the NSBA annual meeting and was held by the Omaha Bar Association Young Lawyers Division. The Omaha Bar Association would like to thank the Omaha Daily Record for its sponsorship of our podcast. The Omaha Daily Record has been Omaha's legal publication since 1886. For more information, go to www.omahadailyrecord.com. What pre-mediation steps should attorneys take before they even think about calling all of you? I, 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 I said, can you hear me okay? Let me pull that out. We can just hand it back and forth. Does this work now? Uh, I said on a uh, panel about a year ago, and the question was, how do you know, how do you find a good mediator? And Dave Woodkey sitting next to me immediately said, 402 <laughs> <laughs> um, If if the question is what do you as an attorney do prior to uh, selecting a mediator, you know, I think you got to get the right mediator and, and different mediators can handle different cases. Uh, so you need to talk to people who have uh, mediated cases with whoever your shortlist is and, and tell them maybe a little bit about the case. Um, be sure that you've got a, a conflicts uh, list that you can give to the mediator right up front so that you don't waste a lot of time to capture a date and think you're ready to go and then uh, they remember the conflicts check. Um, and who should attorneys include in the list of people that they give to the mediator for conflicts? <clears throat> well, you need to include the parties. Uh, if there's a principal who's going to be very active in it, I, I would suggest you include the principal of the party too, but those are primarily the ones that I look at. I don't know if you guys got other thoughts. One, one thing I, I would say, is this working? Yep. Uh, once you and opposing counsel have talked about dates, uh, when you're available, when your decision makers are available, then call the mediator. Uh, don't expect the mediator to organize the thing. Um, very often people tend to do that and I end up making calls and sending emails and it's not the most effective way. Usually eyeball to eyeball counsel can work out the details and then inform the mediator. How many of you have online calendars for folks to look at? All of you? Okay, so it should be easy for everybody to get on the phone with opposing counsel and then find a date that works? Yes, all they have to do is after they've talked, uh, the counsel, they just press a button and it sends one of us a notice. This is the date. Here's who I am. 
and then we get in touch with you almost immediately. What are some considerations folks should think about in terms of location of the mediation? And I'm going to have Mike start because I know you've had some interesting experiences with mediation location. Well, um, first of all, you have to consider the uh, size of the uh, uh, attendees. Uh, I've uh, have done several mediations where there have been as many as 80 participants or maybe 85 and so it's difficult to find a place that can accommodate that um, and you need to have a lot of conference rooms but also big space as well uh, fortunately our firm has been able to accommodate that um, but I've had uh, you know I'm always happy to go wherever anybody wants to go fortunately at, at QTAC Rock we have very nice conference uh, center and it's neutral and so a lot of my mediations are done there but I've had mediations where I've gone out to Valentine Nebraska for example and the, the attorneys could not agree on which office the mediation was going to be conducted they both wanted it at their office so what I ended up doing in a blizzard was having to walk between the two offices down Main Street of Valentine in a blizzard um, to do each caucus session and you know if that's what has to happen to have a, the process work I'm willing to do that but um, generally uh, uh, I, I, I find that the attorneys feel more comfortable at least some of them most of them I would say uh, in having it at a neutral spot and when I travel uh, frequently it's at a one attorney's law firm but um, for example out in western Nebraska central Nebraska a lot of times we're doing it at hotels where we uh, reserve the conference rooms uh, off the lobby of the hotels but that's my experience I, I've got one uh, geographically related uh, suggestion. For those of you um, in, the, in the western part of the state, uh, I know that there's not an abundance of, a mediator, of mediators from Nebraska present. What I've done on some occasions with uh, attorneys from Scotts Bluff and Ogallala is meet in Denver. Uh, they, it's easier uh, if, if they need a mediator who if they choose mediator who has to be back the next day, pretty much has to fly out there and back. And uh, it really works out pretty well to, to do it in Denver. The other thing that can happen is uh, you can uh, just check around and see if anybody else needs a mediator too and do two or three of them uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, out in Alliance. Uh, and the mediator will stay overnight and uh, split the travel costs up between the three. Uh, the three mediations. Any location questions from the audience? Okay, what about timing of a mediation? Are there some considerations that attorneys should give to when <coughs> a mediation should happen? It's your turn. It's my turn. Uh, really, there is no magic time. Uh, I would suggest that you know, as soon as you get a file and crack it open, that is not the time to schedule a mediation. You ought to at least be familiar with the subject matter, uh, and opposing counsel should also be familiar with the subject matter. You know, frequently we'll mediate a case pre-suit, and there will not have been formal discovery at all, but if the two lawyers trust each other and have exchanged relevant documents upon request or even without a request, 
when you feel you have sufficient command of the subject matter to properly advise your client, I, I'd suggest that is probably the first time you should consider mediating. In my experience is, you know, I have no idea at the time a mediation is scheduled, even what the issues are, how many parties there are, so I leave it to the attorneys to uh, determine on my online calendar whether it should be a half day or a full day mediation, and those are the two defaults. Um, I will tell you that on occasion, um, you know, I'll have a, an afternoon half day mediation scheduled and then an attorney will take the morning and I find out that it involves, you know, six or seven parties and, you know, millions of dollars and that's always a problem because I've got people showing up at typically 12.30, 12.45 waiting for their mediation and uh, the morning mediation is still going on and then I have to mediate both cases simultaneously. It's not as big of a problem in reverse where if a short mediation is in the morning and the, the long mediation is in the afternoon, I can go as late in the evening as I need to to resolve that mediation. But, but uh, typically it's up to the attorneys to determine among themselves whether it's a full day or a half day. And fortunately, not many of them try to squeeze a full day mediation into a morning half session because that's very difficult to accomplish. I would estimate that 20 to 25 percent of my mediations are pre-litigation mediations, and, and I like them. Uh, I think they're a great idea if you can do it before you you get into litigation because things go south sometimes after a couple depositions are taken or discovery is initiated. But if you're going to do that uh, and you're able to, if you have a, the kind of relationship with opposing counsel that you can call up and say, look, I need to know these things ahead of time, uh, do it. Otherwise, um, expect, if you're going to do a pre-litigation mediation, expect that it's going to also be a discovery session. Uh, people are going to say to the mediator, I, I got to know what, what uh, she's going to say to, uh, what her answer is going to be to this question. And, and I think that's fair. I mean, they're, they're trying to do this without taking <coughs> depositions, without submitting interrogatories. You got to be prepared to share what you're going to have to share anyway, uh, two or three months later. Yeah. Does your likelihood of success, of successful mediation, uh, increase as you move, as the parties move towards trial? Are you more successful at mediation immediately prior to trial than pre-litigation? Uh, I could not uh, venture a guess on that. I, I don't notice anything. The only thing I notice. Uh, I think that all three of us would tell you that over 90% of the mediations that we do are successful. Um, uh, that remaining 7 to 10%, the, the, the usual culprit is it's court ordered. Uh, those are less likely to be uh, successful. Uh, but uh, I, I don't think there's any appreciable difference between pre and post litigation in terms of chance of success. I, I, I disagree a little bit with Mike. I don't think I've seen any significant variance between court-ordered and non-court-ordered mediation in terms of success except in one category of cases and those are medical malpractice cases where the defendant doctor or healthcare provider has a consent clause in, in the policy that allows the healthcare provider to say, I am not going to allow any offers to be made on this case. And that will frequently happen in med mal cases, and yet 
judges are still referring those cases, ordering the cases to go to mediation. And frankly, in those cases, there's no shot of ever getting the case settled because the doctor has made up his mind or the health care provider has made up its mind that it's not going to offer anything. So that's just a waste of time. I think everyone else is okay. Um, our next set of questions arises around who should come to the mediation. Um, so in terms of an attorney deciding um, who should be in the room or who should be available by phone, what are your thoughts as to good parties to be there, bad, bad people to be there, what, what are your thoughts? First of all, uh, you as advocates in mediation should be sensitive to what a mediator has to contend with. So if it's a two-party mediation with two decision makers, having a room full of people accompany your decision maker, I don't care how close they are to your decision maker, is going to do one thing for sure, it's going to prolong the mediation. Uh, sometimes quadruple the time. If you have enough people there, the mediator sometimes feels obligated to keep his or her ears open, regardless of whether the person speaking has an axe to grind in the lawsuit. Uh, so, keeping the numbers down makes sense. Uh, also, I'm concerned, uh, and you should also be concerned, I think, as advocates in mediation about confidentiality. Yes, you can have all of the non-party attendees sign a, a confidentiality agreement, but let's face it, sometimes those aren't worth the paper they're written on, and if your client has buddies coming with him or her to the mediation, recognize the possibility of proliferation of mediation discourse is increased. So just those concerns I have the numbers, and who is it? I certainly wouldn't bring anyone, uh, if I were your client, I would not want to bring anyone who is going to be disrupted. I don't think as a mediator I've ever recommended to any party that they bring or not bring a particular person. I will tell you that the people who have come in the past have included boyfriends, uh, girlfriends, confidants, uh, spouses, pastors, uh, counselors, um, and other mediators. Uh, I've, had, uh, I've had probably seven or eight where a second mediator came as an advisor to one of the parties. <coughs> and as a general rule, that's usually helpful. Uh, as long as they bring somebody who is reasonable and who they trust, I would encourage it. Uh, but sometimes you got a boyfriend or a girlfriend who just wants to latch on to uh, half of what's going to be offered and then be gone, and, and that, that's that's not good. And, and you as the lawyer have to make that decision. And, and you really should explore it with your client. Uh, why do you want to bring Henry with you? I mean, find out. If, if it's not a good reason, don't bring Henry. I, I again take a little bit different approach than uh, do John and Mike. I, I never limit the people that can attend and frankly if there's someone out there who's a boyfriend or 
um, a friend or anybody who might be um, a problem in the process, I would rather have them at the mediation in person where I can have some ability to talk to and control that person rather than having the party attend and go to the restroom and get on the cell phone or go outside and call this other person and say whatever he or she wants to say and I have no ability to uh, respond or react to it. And so I want the disruptive people at my mediation so that I can deal with them. And I'm frequently told, I had one just a, a, a week or two ago where an attorney told me that a, a, a boyfriend was going to be a, a significant problem. And, and I said, that's fine, let's uh, have him there. And he was a problem, but we ended up getting the case settled despite it. And, and it allowed me to be able to control the message to that individual rather than having him just hear what the, the girlfriend was telling him and without any ability for me to respond to it. And so I think the more control that the mediator has over the disruptive parties, even if they aren't technically parties to the litigation, the better the chance of getting to a resolution rather than having those conversations occur by cell phone outside of my presence. Have you ever had to take someone out? Uh, I will tell you in the mediation that I just referenced, the attorney for the female party did kick out the boyfriend um, at about an hour or two into the mediation during private caucus sessions that he was having with the girlfriend. Um, and but, but on the other hand, he was in the room when I was in the room. And um, uh, so it allowed the attorney to continue to have the attorney-client privilege um, uh, uh, communications, but when I was in the room, he wanted me to be in the room when the disruptive boyfriend was, was going to be in the room as well. Um, how do you feel about whether insurance claims reps should be physically present at the mediation versus available by phone? I, I will answer it and I'll let uh, uh, Mike and John follow up, but every mediator that I know much prefers to have the claims people, and frankly every party that you're dealing with, present in person because there's just a different level of communication, trust that can be built up um, through in-person discussions that can't exist over the telephone. Uh, however, as I think all of you know, many insurance companies now have consolidated into fewer offices. They don't have offices in Omaha and they simply refuse to fly someone to Omaha for each and every mediation. So we have no choice but to either uh, agree to do the mediations, allowing the claims person to participate telephonically or the mediation won't take place. And um, you know, I still think that even with those mediations where the claim uh, person is available by telephone, uh, you know, the same, essentially the same percentage rate of success occurs. The only thing that's really, really unfortunate, and it happens a handful of times every year, is where a claims person is supposed to be available by telephone, and they even have given the attorney the cell phone number, and yet they go AWOL um, after the first or second telephone call, and they're in meetings, or they go out to lunch, and they're not answering their cell phone. Those are very frustrating situations, but it doesn't happen very often in my experience. 
I think if we're being realistic, we have to accept the the, the fact that what Mike alluded to is, is true, that they're consolidating and, and a lot of the um, insurance adjusters I deal with are in uh, Dallas, uh, New York, uh, Nashville. Uh, and, and if it's not a big case uh, and they can do it by phone, they're going to do it by phone. If I were a plaintiff's attorney and I and this was a, a fairly big case, I would consider filing a motion uh, asking for mediation uh, to be ordered and setting some uh, conditions, one of them being uh, in-person presence. You may lose that. The judge may very well say, well, they can do exactly what they're going to do uh, by uh, uh, telephone. I if that happens, my suggestion to you as a plaintiff's attorney is explain to the court that mediation truly is a process. And what I tell everybody in the morning is, if this mediation is going to be successful, you're likely going to offer more money than you think you're going to offer right now, and you're likely going to take less than you think you're going to take right now. And, and that happens because they start listening to what the jury's going to hear, and they really do start reconsidering their positions. It's a little difficult to to complete that process or to effectuate that process when somebody's on the phone. Because sometimes when they're on the phone, they don't even want to talk to the mediator. They'll tell the mediator, you tell the lawyer, you tell my lawyer where we're at, and, and then we'll talk. Well, we doesn't include me. Uh, it's just the lawyer and, and the adjuster. Uh, so I think you're better off if you can get them in the room. I think you have to realize you're not going to get them in the room every time. Uh, there's just not going to be voluntary mediation sometimes because they're not going to they're not going to fly from Dallas for a forty thousand dollar case. They'll just spend forty nine cents and put it in a letter. And one thing I always encourage the lawyers to do: uh, tell me who is going to attend, so at least everybody knows whom to expect to see in, the, in that room when the mediation begins. I don't like surprises in mediations. They're never helpful. Uh, and if you have promised to have an adjuster there and the adjuster doesn't show up, what is the plaintiff's lawyer supposed to do? You know, I, I would not fault a plaintiff's lawyer uh, in taking the position, hey, you told me the adjuster was going to be here, he or she is not, we'll convene if and when he or she is attending. Um, so it's important that people know who's going to be there. Any other questions about pre-mediation parties? Yeah. We think they're all big cases, okay? That doesn't mean an insurance company is going to view it the same way. Uh, probably you're not going to get an adjuster to fly to Omaha, for example, for a personal injury mediation when the downside may be uh, $200,000 or less. Those companies have some sort of bellwether they use. I don't know what those are, 
but i'm not surprised if once i look at the injuries i frequently i'm not surprised that the adjuster isn't there from dallas or chicago or florida so i don't know how to answer that you'd have to ask insurers what's your cutoff when do you send a live body a big case doesn't necessarily have a dollar sign in front of it uh you may have a client who's dying uh you may have a client who's on the uh, edge of bankruptcy uh you may have a client uh who's uh, gonna go to prison uh and so you may have a time factor and that could make it a big case in and of itself um i'll tell a, a terrible story on myself <laughs> i they're not they're not normally this small uh i had a case that settled for twenty five hundred dollars i wrote it up for twenty five thousand and both lawyers signed it in terms of what a big case is i, I never think of a uh, particular mediation is is this a big case or not a big case the, the, the reality is that for the parties, their case is always a big case, regardless of the dollar amount. Um, in terms of uh, whether or not um, an insurance adjuster or claims person is going to attend or not, I frankly don't have control over that scenario. If someone calls me and says, hey, uh, I don't want, uh, my claims rep doesn't want to come to the mediation, is that okay? I always say it's not my call. You have to call the other attorney and get the other attorney's permission to not have your claims person there. And if they agree, that's fine with me. If they don't agree, that's fine with me too. But then you better go to the court and get a court order one way or the other. But I'm not the one who's going to be the arbiter of whether or not a claims person can arrive because I really don't think that's within our authority as mediators. What are some things that attorneys have done in the past to get their clients ready for mediation that you've really liked and conversely what are some things attorneys do to either get their clients ready or not get their clients ready that get in the way of the process i i will tell you that i i it still happens i get a call every couple of months from a plaintiff attorney uh who will say mike um you know, uh, when this case came in, I, I told the, the plaintiff that it was worth X dollars and uh, it's worth one third of X dollars and um, you need to be the, the, the guy pushing here, but I'll back you up. But, but I can't lose my, my face with my, with my client and, and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, and so I would tell you that the, one of the big things that I see that attorneys are not doing to prepare their clients is they're not being realistic with them prior to the mediation and telling them what their case is worth. But I kind of get it because there's a lot of competition out there in the plaintiff's bar and uh, frankly clients want to hear that their case is worth a lot of money before they sign on the dotted line and sign a representation agreement. Um, but uh, by the same token, the, 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 the better plaintiff attorneys that I know will sit down before a mediation and have a heart-to-heart -heart and, and I know that they will tell their client this is a range that would be a good settlement, this would be an okay settlement and below this number we, we really could take this case to trial and have a good shot at doing it better. Um, rather than those attorneys that leave the unrealistic expectation until the morning of the mediation and then 
you know, start with a, an opening demand of $10 million for a case that settles for under 100000 And I always wonder in those cases, what does the plaintiff think about the attorney at the end of that process? And I occasionally will become aware that before the mediation, the lawyer hasn't spoken with the client. Uh, and I'm frankly shocked by that. Uh, you're asking your client to walk into a process they know very little, perhaps nothing about, and if you haven't done something to educate them about the process, as well as to catch yourself up on what's been going on with the claim, and discuss that with your client before the mediation, <clears throat> I don't think you've done a good job as a lawyer. That client ought to be ready. Yeah, that client will have expectations, but the client ought not be surprised by what the process consists of, and the client shouldn't hear for the first time what you think of the claim, you know? The client may not listen to you. That's a cold, hard fact. The client may not listen to you when you tell him or her privately what you think of the claim. And that's why occasionally such a lawyer will say, boy, I need your help. They're not listening to me. Happens very often. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, question. The, the parties and their attorneys at the initial time <coughs> together, that's one question. The other is your each of your philosophies on how proactive are you in getting the case settled? Let's start with the first um, uh, question. Do we separate the parties or do we get them together? Uh, I bring them together for five minutes and I do the talking. I talk to them ahead of time uh, about that and make sure it's okay. Uh, two days ago, it wasn't okay. They were just not going to be in the same room. That's happened uh, less than a handful of times. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a, a funny story, and it's not not a funny story. It's a, it's a um, I'll tell you a story. Um, <laughs> Mullen and I were at a, a national workshop one time recently, and within the last year, and there is an effort on the West Coast, primarily California, and on the East Coast, primarily Florida, to change things up and have the parties together the entire time. And to try to sell this to all the people attending this, they put on a uh, uh, four-part mediation, 45 minutes in four parts, where they had different people being the mediator. Uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist was a mediator, a neuroscientist was a mediator, a lawyer was a mediator, and they kept them together the whole time, and of course it worked because they were trying to uh, sell it. Um, at lunch, uh, Mike and I were talking to uh, one of the panelists, and, and uh, he was from Florida, and I said, that doesn't always work, I assume, and, and he says, well, no. He said, uh, there was one in Fort Lauderdale where the sister uh, said, may I say something to my brother? And the mediator said, yes, and she stood up and shot him and killed him. Um, so uh, it doesn't always work. Uh, and in the Midwest, uh, I don't think it's ever going to sell. Uh, there, there may be in a non-civil matter, in a neighbor matter, in a domestic matter, maybe uh, they need to hug at the end. I don't know. 
but uh, in what we do in civil litigation, I, I don't think it's going to uh, be the more popular um, uh, way to go ever. Uh, and, and I think for good reason. And, and I, I do the same as Mike. I get everybody together in almost all of my mediations for, uh, mine is about a 15-minute spiel that I give about mediations, but I always uh, strongly discourage opening statements, which I think are divisive and um, counterproductive to the process. Um, and interestingly, even though uh, there, there are groups that are pushing towards keeping the parties at mediation uh, the entire time in joint session, and that's kind of the way mediation initially developed decades ago, uh, the reality in California is that, that they never go into joint session from the mediators that I talked to out there. And if any mediator insists upon even doing a joint session for a, just a short spiel about the mediation process, uh, typically the plaintiff's bar will say, well, we'll never use you again. So they have effectively killed the joint session in California. Uh, I think it's very important to get people together in most cases. Um, it allows for uh, expressions of apology, which if they're sincere, I think are, are very uh, helpful to the process. An insincere uh, apology is very uh, counterproductive to the process. Uh, but uh, I, I think that the, the, uh, the, the opening statements um, are typically, my experience is when there are opening statements, that that uh, adds about two hours to the mediation just to undo the damage that it causes. And I could tell one story as well about a, a, a big case, uh, a big Boston firm sent out uh, two or three attorneys, a couple paralegals, and they insisted upon doing a PowerPoint presentation at the beginning of the mediation. They were defending a lawsuit. Plaintiff attorney said, I'm not going to go in there and listen to that. And, um, and I, I said that they went back to the defendants and said, you know, the plaintiff attorney is not going to do that. And watch the PowerPoint. You, you know, you could, I'll show it to them in, in caucus session if you want. And they insisted, saying, we spent $100,000 on this. Plaintiff attorney is going to see it. So I talked to the plaintiff attorney, asked him as a favor if he would go in and sit through the, the opening uh, session with the PowerPoint. And um, about two minutes into the PowerPoint, he leaned over to me and said, Mike, where's your newspaper? <laughs> and I said, no, uh, I don't have a newspaper. So he knew he had mediated with, at our offices before, and he knew that there was a, a, a newspaper at the receptionist's desk outside of this particular uh, conference room. So he gets up, saunters out, gets the newspaper, comes back, the PowerPoint's being played up there, he sits down this way with his legs up on the table reading the newspaper and does that for the entire hour that the PowerPoint was playing. And you can imagine the emotion and anger that I had to deal with afterwards, but again, that's, that's not the way to start a mediation. And again, it took me about two hours to undo the emotions till we could start talking about the, the merits of the case again. I echo everything the two mics have said. Uh, my confirmation letter setting up the mediation and telling everybody what the agreed details consist of uh, tells them if, if you are going to insist on making any kind of opening statement, I need to know that. And I also tell them in my confirmation letter, I don't encourage opening statements. I have far more often than not found them to be divisive. 
bids to your second point. Uh, I think you'll find the three of us would characterize ourselves as proactive mediators. I remember attending a seminar uh, at the annual meeting of the state bar back in the 90s and I had just started uh, offering mediation services uh, a couple years before that so this would have been about 1997 and there was a professor from Texas up here and she had published uh, things dealing with mediation and was considered an expert and she offered this view. Uh, you cannot have opinions as a mediator and call yourself a mediator. And John Miller stood up and said, then I will call myself a settler of cases. Yeah. God bless him. Uh, you know, if, if you as an advocate are telling me something in one of my private conferences with you and your client that is blatantly unsupported by any evidence and I know it to be so, don't expect me to sit there and maintain a straight face and never touch the subject again. I will touch it again. Uh, I'll touch it as often as I feel I need to until I think it's been aired out. Uh, we do have opinions. That's, that's the, the truth. We have opinions. We are human beings, number one, and we are lawyers, number two. We are bound to have opinions. And will I beat you over the head? Will these guys beat you over the heads with their opinions? Probably not, but you will know what they are. Not because we make a pronouncement. By the way, we ask our questions. It's probably the, the, the biggest indicator. Where's this mediator coming from? Why is he asking me this? He's asked me that before, but in a different way. What's wrong with that? You know, so yes, I think all of us would say we are, we view ourselves as proactive. And Vince, I will tell you, one of the complaints that I hear, I, I will occasionally do a mediation where I've been told that it had been mediated previously unsuccessfully, and typically what I hear is, <coughs> oh, that first mediator was just a water carrier. And water carrier is a term that is used for someone who is not proactive and just carries offers and demands back and forth. And generally, that's not a very productive process. And, and frankly, the lawyers expect more than that now. Now, I always tell people I cannot make predictions. I don't have a crystal ball. And if a case is tried 10 times before 10 different juries, there are going to be 10 different results. But what I can talk about is the risk assessment and where I see weaknesses in a case. And I think it's very important for the neutral to speak with each party about the weaknesses that that party has. Thank you. Are there, setting aside materials related to the case, which we'll get to in a second, but are there other pieces of information that are helpful for you to have received with a phone call or something from the other, from one of the attorneys? Because I know we're all thinking ex parte, and obviously there's no ex parte communication with the mediator. Are there things you'd like to know about before you walk in? Yeah, uh, ex parte is not a dirty word in mediation. And, and in fact, in, in my engagement letter, I tell the people that I may call one or more of the attorneys and I welcome their calls too. And almost always, they're helpful. Uh, if there's something about uh, the adjuster, if there's something about the plaintiff, 
uh, that uh, a vulnerability, uh, an area you should avoid, anything that helps you create a relationship with that person that, that his or her lawyer can help you with is really important. So uh, time permitting, I always try to talk to counsel ahead of time. It doesn't always happen, but it, it seldom uh, is not worth it. It's, it's, it's valuable. And sometimes there are just dynamics that you can't foresee that you wouldn't know about unless one of the attorneys called you to tell you about it. Maybe one party is, is dying, for example, and, and uh, a plaintiff is dying, and um, uh, the plaintiff attorney wants you to know that. Things like that um, are important to know for a mediator. But um, I, uh, unlike Mike, I don't typically generate calls because I simply don't have the time to although I'm always happy to receive calls from parties, or typically attorneys, that want to talk about their case pre-mediation to give me any information on the dynamics. And invariably, those conversations are helpful. Hey, what's, what's a good rule of thumb for, especially some of the younger lawyers that haven't done this before, in terms of how to, how to figure out what to send you? I like having something that can be reviewed in a typical case. Uh, we're not talking a major piece of antitrust litigation, but in a typical case, uh, I don't spend much more than a few hours and very often spend less than that reviewing and preparing. Uh, you wouldn't expect a trial judge to, to review as, as completely as he or she is capable if you submit a 75-page trial brief. You'd probably want to hold it down. Maybe that's why they have court rules limiting the length of briefs. But be sensitive. You are paying for the mediator's time in preparing for the mediation. And you don't want to submit materials that are going to take hours upon hours to review because you will have to pay for them. I exercise my discretion occasionally. I will have a lawyer send me 10 deposition transcripts instead of just giving me a precy of what each of those witnesses had to offer. That's what I prefer, some kind of summary of what these witnesses' views are as expressed in deposition testimony on various relevant issues. That takes you a couple of pages of a letter to do, and it will only take the mediator five minutes to review it, as opposed to delving into transcripts. So, you know, do not, please do not, uh, unless you've got one of those cases that's going to take six months to try and documents are very critical to the case, boxes to the mediator should not be your option. Even though they're not your option, I will tell you that I frequently get boxes of documents, and that's because when anybody asks me, I always say, err on the side of giving me more information than less information, because I believe that the more I know about a case, the more effective I can be in terms of my risk assessments. And so it's not unusual for me to get um, uh, boxes of documents. Um, I did one, well, actually two mediations this week, where one I had 10 depositions, Another, I have seven depositions. I even have attorneys who know where I live and they will drop boxes or big folders of materials at my house 
the night before a mediation at 8 or 9 p.m., knowing that I don't sleep very much and knowing that I will also read everything that's presented to me. Do I enjoy it? No, but I would never criticize them because you never bite the hand that feeds you. <laughs> well, I, I would never criticize them publicly, but um, <laughs> it's, I, I, I received today a 47-page single-space narrative summary in addition to the attachments uh, from the same lawyer who I received a 78-page single-space narrative summary once, and, and that's not necessary. If you can't summarize your case in 10 pages or less, um, you need to go to mediation school and do something because every mediation, I think, can be, can be summarized in 10 pages or less. I don't care how complex it is. It's not going to cover everything, but it's going to highlight the issues. It's going to tell you what to look for. It's going to tell you what the issues are. And then you can be thinking about, uh, about how you're going to handle the issues. Depositions, if they send them to me and I have the time, I read them. I figure they sent them to me because they wanted me to read them. I figure that for a second reason, and that is my letter says, don't send me depositions, send me summaries. Don't send me expert opinions, send me summaries, if you can. And I think younger lawyers sometimes feel like they're trying a lawsuit and they have to prove everything and they have to cite to the record and they have to have backup for it. You don't. You gotta just tell us a story about what your case is about and then let us let us kind of guide everybody together to uh, come up with a solution. But we don't have to have it tried uh, in what you sent us ahead of time. Mike and I share uh, our mediation coordinator, um, and I will say Mike might not complain, but she gets very worried about him when he gets a big box of materials at 5 o'clock for his mediation the next day. So if you want to make Cheryl happy, you can send things a couple days ahead and maybe not quite so much. We have a question over here. Yes? Do you prefer mediation statements written more like a brief, advocating a position, um, or do you prefer an honest assessment of the strengths and weaknesses? That's a good question, and I have an answer for it. There are two kinds of mediation statements I typically receive, and you've named them both. Uh, there's a lawyer I have in mind. He would uh, typically tell me not only the good points about the matter for his client, but the weaknesses in his client's case. That was helpful for me to know, would I eventually have learned that in the course of conversations with him and his client? Yes, but it might have taken a couple of hours, whereas he honestly set forth a weakness, okay? So this is a case, not unlike most cases, with a wart. And that's helpful to a mediator. It saves time, among other things. Uh, Typically, however, what I get are statements that tell me what's great about that lawyer's case and nothing about any weaknesses. And I always marvel that that lawyer has not shared that confidential mediation statement with opposing counsel because it's nothing but chest beating. Why wouldn't you, why would you hesitate to share something you would likely submit to a judge to argue the good points in your case. Um, that's a point I often tell people in my confirmation letter, routinely I tell people, 
Please consider sharing your mediation statement. You may submit something in addition to it to me in confidence, and I will keep it in confidence, but uh, it's important for lawyers to understand, particularly if the case has not been in litigation and through motion practice and whatnot, what the other side's positions are. And sharing a, a mediation statement with opposing counsel will do that. But I do appreciate the side submissions that are submitted confidentially. Uh, there's a good reason to do that. It saves time. It also lends some credibility, believe it or not, to have a lawyer say, I understand, like every case, this one has its warts, and here they are. Here's how we propose to deal with them. So that's helpful stuff, I think. Like John, I've, it it's, doesn't happen very often, but, but I've received some position statements that um, do share, uh, you know, the strengths of our case and then weaknesses in our case and a very valid, honest assessment of the weaknesses in those cases. Uh, but I've also experienced, and I think these may be out-of-state attorneys uh, who have done uh, what I think is a very, uh, uh, a very good practice where they will do one mediation statement that they share with the other side and then they send me a separate confidential statement with the, the weaknesses and I think that's a really good practice as well. I don't see it too much here locally, but outside of the state, uh, I've seen a number of attorneys that do that as a practice, and I think it's a good one. If you have a case where you need a day in the life video, do you guys have any thoughts as to the best way to present that to the mediator on the other side? I always tell them to send it to them prior to the mediation. So, uh, first of all, Understand that if you're dealing with an insurance case, and typically if it's a day in life video, you're dealing with an, a personal injury and it's going to be an insurance related case, there's going to be a, 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 a round table a week or 10 days before that mediation. So if it just shows up on the day of the mediation, it has no effect on the valuation or the settlement authority that the defendant will have. However, if the plaintiff sends it to the uh, defense attorney, uh, prior to the mediation, a couple weeks in advance, and says you're permitted to share this with your client, the, the carrier, then the claims committee meeting um, may have the ability to, to view that day in the life video then. Yeah, but I don't think, if you're just showing it for the first time on the day of the mediation, I think it's wasted. D don't underestimate, plaintiff's counsel, the value and the importance, however, of a day in the life. Uh, Thank you. Because w what we hear is exactly what Mike referred to. Thank you. Um, is uh, gosh, I'd like to uh, reconsider this, but this was uh, group paneled, and I can't get the group panel back together for another week, uh, as opposed to just picking up the phone and talking to the supervisor. So, if you can get that to them ahead of time, uh, that's much more powerful. Uh, than anything else that you can do at that mediation. Bringing your client into the conference room in a wheelchair, uh, yeah, they'll see him sitting in a wheelchair, but they don't know how that day started. They don't know how difficult that day was. They don't know how uh, long or short that day was for that person. Get that to the, to the decision makers well in advance of, of uh, two weeks before the mediation because it, it can be a powerful piece of evidence. 
No serious cases, uh, personal injury cases, what about the permanency assessments? What types of information are most helpful for attorneys to, to provide there? I'll try the first whack. Uh, I've had a lot of PI cases come up for mediation and the plaintiff's lawyer acts as if there is a permanency to this injury, but furnishes no evidence and in fact has no evidence from any medical provider that this injury is indeed permanent and the nature and extent of that permanency. Uh, unless you share that kind of information with opposing counsel well in advance of the mediation, as Mike, both Mike's have just said, the insurance company probably isn't going to pay any attention to it if the bomb is dropped at the mediation session. Uh, so please be sure you've got the report you need from medical providers to make your case. Otherwise, it will be believed to be a temporary injury. One other point I'll make is that uh, some of the best mediation position statement or preparations for mediation have been plaintiff lawyers who have made appointments with treating physicians, particularly in cases where there are causation issues. There may be a, a prior auto accident or a prior injury that, that the defense can use to say, well, this, the, the current symptoms are the natural progression from the, the, the pre-accident uh, trauma but the plaintiff attorney will take 10 minutes, go out to the doctor's office. It's not a deposition, it's a sit down, quick video, and say, doctor, uh, 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 there's an argument that will be made in this case that uh, the, 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 the current symptoms are the natural progression of a prior injury. What, is, what are your views on that? And the doctor will elaborate as to why the symptoms may be different or located in a different spot or there may be some objective findings that distinguish. And I think those types of information are extremely effective, particularly if they can be given to the defense attorney and the defendant carrier in advance of the mediation to be considered. And so some of the best materials I've seen are those where there are actual videos of of uh, damage witnesses, they may be family members or friends who can testify to, or at least going to talk on, on video about uh, the changes that they had seen in the plaintiff and uh, to get that information circulated prior to the mediation. Again, at the, at the time of the mediation, it's too late because it simply can't be uh, used effectively to change valuation on the day of the mediation. Are there some things that defense lawyers can do in terms of, um, I'm thinking in terms of release and, and confidentiality and things like that. Are there some things that can be presented at the beginning of the mediation by the defense that can be helpful to ensuring a successful settlement? If you um, <coughs> are gonna insist on confidentiality, don't wait till the end. Everybody assumes in a med-mal case or a legal mal case or a dental mal case, uh, there's going to be confidentiality, um, and and that's kind of a given. But if there's for some reason you want it in a in a truck case, uh, bring it up to the mediator in the beginning so that he or she can make it part of the uh, tender each time. 
um, was there something besides confidentiality? I know, I know sharing mediator fees or paying mediator fees, um, oftentimes, not oftentimes, about a third of the time, I will hear from the adjuster, don't talk to me about us paying the plaintiff's share of the mediator's fee. Let them know right now we're not gonna pay that. Others will just remain silent and uh, wait and see if it comes up. I always recommend to defense counsel and defense adjuster, uh, and I recommend it in the beginning so they can be thinking about it, that they consider at some point offering to pay the plaintiff's share of the mediation fee if it involves a wrongful death. Uh, death cases are tough because people who have just lost a loved one, they don't, they don't understand pecuniary value and they don't understand that you can't recover for grief in Nebraska. You can recover for loss of care, companionship in society, but not grief, bereavement. How does that make sense? Uh, so to kind of soften that, I always suggest that the defense consider right up front offering to pay the uh, mediation fee for the plaintiff. And I do the same in first party insurance cases where the uh, defendant carrier is insuring the plaintiff. And, and many times uh, those carriers will agree to pay the plaintiff's share if they are an insured of that defendant carrier rather than a third party carrier. Uh, as we take a break about some strategies that you've seen defense lawyers do in mediation that you found particularly helpful. Yes, uh, we've already covered how apparently all three of us agree on the proposition that generally opening statements by counsel are not to be encouraged. Uh, I make one exception, and it's something I used to do in the personal injury context when I was defending a case. Uh, and I can think of one specific example. John Miller was mediating the case, and I had just finished taking the plaintiff's deposition over about two to three hours prior to the mediation that morning. And I was very impressed with the plaintiff. His candor, his openness, uh, his obvious honesty, he admitted to problems with his claim uh, without hesitation, etc., etc. So I asked John Miller for permission to speak, and he too generally strongly discouraged opening statements by counsel. And I told him what I was going to say, and this is what I did say. I, I told the witness, the plaintiff, what my feelings were after completing his deposition, what my thoughts about him were. He was honest, candid, didn't duck my questions, and I told him in 30 years of practicing law, I've never had a witness come across as you did. And I just want you to know that we are here for a reason, and that's to work with you to find a solution to this problem. And then I shut up. Often, particularly in a personal injury setting, I think those kinds of comments can be helpful in setting a conciliatory tone. Otherwise, the plaintiff is sitting there looking at defense counsel, thinking, I wonder what that bastard is thinking about. I wonder if he's ever going to say anything. That dirty, you know, rotten, get rid of the dirty, rotten impression. Let him know. We're here to work with you. Yeah. 
Amy, you, I think you asked your question in terms of defense counsel, and I'm, I'm afraid my answer may spill over to all counsel, but um, I think you, you, you need to appreciate that going to a mediation is, deserves not as much time, but a good portion of the same time you'd spend getting ready for trial. The successful mediations on the big ones uh, are successful because the lawyers are prepared and uh, prepared in terms of talking to their uh, client ahead of time about what to expect and, and uh, don't let this or that get, get to you. <coughs> Another thing that counsel can do and should do is not just cascade everything out in the first caucus. Let it drip out over the first three or four hours because that helps the mediator go back to the other side and not repeat himself or herself, but add some more to what they're going to face, what they need to react to, what they need to face up to. Uh, a little bit at a time helps. Eventually, in most mediations, you're going to be talking about the liability and the facts in the first half, and then you're going to just start talking about numbers. But during that first half, uh, let it drip out a little bit at a time. Save a couple things for that third caucus. Um, something that, when I was first mediating, I, I don't do this as much anymore, and I don't do it without turning to the client first and asking for permission. I, uh, I walked in one time and I said, uh, Joe, I need to talk to you. And Joe, the lawyer, came out and we talked. And we went back into the room and his client said, I want to know everything you said to him and I want to know everything you said to him. And she did. Uh, she wanted to know. And, and, and uh, so as counsel, be careful for uh, a sidebar with the mediator. There are going to be times when you're going to want to do that. Uh, and you should tell your client ahead of time that that could happen. That might happen. That's part of the process. The other thing you can do if, if, if it's something important and you don't want to do it uh, openly is you can text the lawyer. Uh, and uh, if the lawyer's got his or her phone with them, maybe they'll see that text. Any other thoughts? Okay, what? Okay, so you've done your opening. You've addressed some of the potential issues with settlement agreements right up front. Then comes the whole sitting in the conference room process piece. What are some things that you've seen that are particularly helpful and then some things that really got in the way of the process? Are you talking about joint session or caucus? Caucus. Um, well, I would I would tell you that that, that what what bothers me and I see it more often than I would like is a plaintiff attorney who spends his time uh, bragging about recent trial verdicts and um, talking about verdicts in other states that uh, are allegedly similar cases where the plaintiff got cajillions of dollars. And uh, and it, I guess it's okay if if, if it's just uh, the attorney negotiating with me, as long as the attorney, when I'm out of the caucus room, says, "Oh, that was just for the benefit of you know trying to pump up the mediator on the value of the case." But I'm not sure that happens uh, uh, in every occasion. And plain, so plaintiff attorneys that that set unrealistic 
expectations from their clients, I think, are counterproductive to the process. And, and, and frankly, I, the best attorneys that I know uh, who are the most dangerous plaintiff attorneys don't do that. And they have already prepared their client for what is a realistic uh, uh, evaluation of their case rather than just uh, bragging about unrelated cases that, that, that secured significant uh, damage awards. Have you seen that in your mediations? Yeah, yeah. Um, Amy, I think I heard as your voice was trailing off, you say I'm inviting war stories. Yes. Um, lawyers keep tabs of your clients' emotions, primarily plaintiff's lawyers, because the adjusters, they've been there many, many times, and nothing unusual is going to happen. Um, when I leave a room with a plaintiff, I almost always say, are you doing okay? Or, How are you doing? Uh, you holding up okay? Um, because you don't know what's going through that person's mind. This is the first time they've ever done that. And it's, it's a, uh, they, they may not have gotten much sleep the night before. It's very, very foreign to them. Uh, you need to keep tabs of your client for other reasons too. Uh, I had a case where the client insisted that uh, the mediation occur at his business office. And counsel for that client um, tried to talk him out of it because the plaintiff didn't want to do it there. And it finally came down to it's my place or no place. We're just not going to do it. And so we do the mediation and we're rocking along and we're making some progress and we spill over into the afternoon. And suddenly he says to me, uh, I'm going to give you an extra $5,000 if you can get this done in the next 10 minutes. And um, I've <laughs> first I, I debated the ethics of, of that, uh, and I quickly decided that I couldn't take the $5,000, and, and I didn't get it done in 10 minutes. And I came back and I told them, you know, well, you're, you saved $5,000. Um, and then about within the hour, after I told them I can't accept that anyway, uh, the price shot up to $25,000 to your favorite charity if you can get it done in the next 10 minutes um, at X dollars. And now it's just not making sense. Uh, and suddenly what's making sense is why he wanted this mediation at his office because this bottle of water that he'd been drinking all day wasn't water. <laughs> and uh, he was just getting slowly schwacked. And, and uh, uh, it finally hit both of us at the same time, and, and we called it off. So, so keep an eye on your client because it is a it, it is a, a foreign, frightening experience, and, and you don't know what what may be going on in their minds. And fortunately, very infrequently, I will have a party show up in Ebreed to begin the mediation session. That has happened probably a dozen times over the last 23 years I've been doing mediations. 
And I always have a question, and lawyers, you'll have to ask yourselves this question. Is my client capable of making intelligent decisions in his now condition? Uh, you know, on one of the occasions, I walked into the room, and the smell of alcohol was just overwhelming. And I looked at the guy, and he's got bloodshot eyes and all the behaviors that come with being inebriated. and. Uh, I did corner the lawyer uh, who was going to, on his way to the restroom. I said, is your client capable right now of making decisions? And he said, well, <clears throat> right now, probably not, but this is going to take another couple hours. I'm going to watch him very carefully to make sure he does. Reminded me of my first jury trial when my client showed up drunk. And I didn't insist that she spend the lunch hour with me after the jury was selected. Uh, guess what happened that afternoon? She showed up even worse. And it was not an experience I care to ever repeat, but those things do occasionally happen. Also, while we're on the subject of watching your clients at mediations, um, your client ought to be told uh, this is particularly for plaintiff's lawyers, of the kinds of behaviors that decision makers across the table from them love to see. Obvious pain behaviors and complaints, everything that would turn most of us, including juries, off. Uh, so watching for that kind of stuff is very important for plaintiff's counsel in particular. Um, your client should not be doing that because it will perhaps turn the mediator off and more importantly if it happens during the opening session jointly uh, the decision maker on the other side of the table gets to see it too and can assume the jury's going to see the same thing come trial time so those are just a couple of thoughts about watching your clients i mediated once where the plaintiff came in with a cane and forgot that the bathrooms are the bathrooms for everybody. So during the opening session, as they walked in, they were limping on the right leg. And as they went to the bathroom, they forgot which leg, and they had the cane in the other hand. They were limping on the left leg. <laughs> so was going to the bathroom at the same time. So that did get in the way. What ideally do you expect attorneys to do when you're not there? What what's some ideal things to do when you're not in caucus with them? When I can, I try to give them some homework. Um, it, it, yesterday, um, I, I had the lawyer working on some uh, legal research uh, issue that had come up. I, I try to keep them busy. Um, uh, it, it's amazing how many times people don't bring a book or a magazine to read during the, the downtimes. And, and lawyers, you got to tell your clients there's going to be some downtimes. You can be sitting there for, by yourself for an hour. Um, and um, so I, I try to give them, you know, do you think you could get a hold of, of um, the subroll person and uh, just tell them where we're at right now and try to get a feeling for where they might be at the end of the day. Give them some ranges, give them some brackets. Uh, anything we can do to keep them busy, making calls, checking out, looking for uh, records that they think are there but they can't find them, go find them. 
and I agree with Mike. I, I would like to think that one, and of course I'm not in the room so I don't know, but I would like to think that the, the attorney is talking to his or her client about um, uh, the merits of the case, uh, negotiating strategies, the, the points that were raised when I was previously in the room about risk assessments, uh, calling up uh, Subro uh, and lien holders uh, to try and negotiate. Um, I will tell you what I don't like is when I leave a caucus room and the attorney immediately leaves and goes into another conference room, an empty conference room, and spends the entire time that I'm gone on the telephone talking with other clients. And I would tell you that happens. And, and, and I will even go so far as to uh, talk to the attorney when I have a chance and say, you know, do you think it's right that you're uh, out of the, your, your, your room, you know, the entire time that I'm out of there? And, and I got to tell you that frequently the response is, I can't stand to be in the same room with that person. <laughs> 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 What, um, in terms of ensuring confidentiality uh, within the caucus room, but also within the greater mediation, what are some, some tips and tricks for the newer attorney representing a party to think about in terms of confidentiality of information? Madam moderator, I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, mediation in Nebraska is a confidential process. Yes. But the benefit is supposed to be educational. And I, I know sometimes that's a hard line to walk when you're new to the mediation process and you're representing a party. You're, you're sometimes not quite sure what you're supposed to share and what you're not. Oh, what the client is supposed to share and what the client is not. Correct. Okay. Yeah, they're often confused, in my experience, uh, about what can safely be shared with the mediator. And people who have worked with me in the past know that I keep my word. I will not repeat anything I hear unless I get express permission from the client and the lawyer that that piece of information may be shared. Uh, if they haven't worked with me before, they're less likely to believe what I'm telling them about that aspect. And I understand that. I wouldn't trust a stranger to keep secrets that are near and dear to me. Uh, I would first test the waters and find out as best I could how, how trustworthy is this mediator. But if you do your homework before selecting a mediator and talk with people who have worked with mediators before, about that aspect, you'll have a, a leg up about what can be shared. My answer is, ideally, share everything with me. It's going nowhere, it's staying up there until they say otherwise. Um, so, that's just a suggestion, check out the mediators. And I, I agree with John um, and everything he said. I also take the position that Everything that is discussed in caucus is cloaked with confidentiality. However, I will tell you that at some of these national conferences that, that I think each of us have gone to, I run into mediators who say, well, uh, I believe that I'm permitted to share everything that I'm told in a caucus session unless I'm told that it is confidential. Mm -hmm. And so they take a reverse uh, uh, view than I do. Frankly, I don't think that's the right approach, and so that's one thing you ought to find out about your mediator 
either before the mediation or at the very latest in your first caucus session. What, uh, 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 which approach does that mediator take? I think probably most of the mediators, maybe all around here, take the position that everything that's said in the caucus session is confidential and, unless you're permitted to use it. And that's why my last question, almost every, t every time my last question leaving a caucus room is, what am I permitted to share? And many times the answer is you're, you're permitted to share everything. But, but uh, there are a number of times I'm told don't, don't talk about this issue or this or that issue. We want to keep that in our back pocket in case the case does not get settled and we have to go to trial. You know, we get these submissions from council and, and in bold letters, capital letters, italics, it's splattered there, this is confidential, do not share. Uh, and yet, when you're done reading it, you realize that 95 to 98 to 100 percent of what you just read is public knowledge. It's from a deposition. It's from the medical records that they've already shared. Uh, it's from the pleadings. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, trust me, the mediators are very conscious of confidentiality. And, and I do exactly the same thing that Mike does. Uh, the last thing I usually say is, are you doing okay? But the thing I say just before that, as I'm leaving, is, is there anything that we've talked about at this session that I cannot share with the other side? Um, the other thing that I do at the end of a mediation regarding confidentiality, <clears throat> um, because they think, well, I can tell, surely I can tell my girlfriend, uh, or I can tell um, my whatever, pastor, um, and I say, well, no, really you can't, and, and I'll give you an example, and, and it happened about a year ago, a dad came home from a mediation, and the daughter said, how did it go, and he said, well, honey, it's confidential, you can't tell anybody, but I got $80,000, and she put it on Facebook, and it got brought to the attention of the judge, and the settlement was scuttled. Uh, so that usually lingers with them for a, a little while. God bless Facebook. Have any of you ever been uh, either subpoenaed or attempted to have been subpoenaed uh, regarding statements made to you at a, at a deposition? Subpoenaed? I'm, I'm sorry, at a mediation. Did you say subpoenaed? Yeah, has anyone tried to call you as a witness regarding statements made by you? I have, uh, several times actually. The most recent was a trial of a legal malpractice case where um, the defendant attorney, um, well, the defendant, uh, it actually settled, but there was a, a suit that was filed, and um, the plaintiff attorney became the defendant in the malpractice suit, and his attorney and carrier tried to subpoena me for a deposition. I filed a motion to quash. That was sustained. And then um, for three consecutive days during a trial, a process server showed up at the main floor of our offices with a summons, a trial uh, summons for me. And uh, each time uh, the uh, uh, first floor receptionist uh, said that I was unavailable, I was one floor up doing a mediation on each of those occasions, so they never got service on me. But ultimately, I, I got one of my colleagues, uh, Bob Slavic, to 
uh, go over and uh, uh, do a motion to quash the trial summons as well. And um, he had not even uh, barely begun to speak, and, and the trial judge uh, sustained the, the, the motion to quash, saying that I could not be subpoenaed to testify. And be, that's due to uh, my agreement to mediate that says that I cannot be subpoenaed. The Uniform Mediation Act, as adopted in Nebraska, says I cannot be subpoenaed. Um, and there really was no authority for them to have me come over and testify. The Uniform Mediation Act that Mike just spoke of uh, starts at section 25-2930. It's not very long. Mike used to have this memorized. <laughs> uh, it says a mediator may disclose whether a mediation occurred or has terminated whether a settlement was reached and who attended. Um, the only significant exception to that is if somebody is being sued for professional negligence during the mediation, whether it be plaintiff's counsel, defense counsel, or um, mediator. And the case uh, that you'd want to look at is Schreiner, uh, 877 Northwest 2nd, 272. Uh, mediation communications privilege did not apply to mediators deposition testimony in legal malpractice action as to attorneys conduct during mediation of underlying personal injury action which attorney allegedly where attorney allegedly pressured client to settle for 45,000 so there are exceptions but they're they're rare uh, and I think for good reason. I, I think you ha you have to walk into that room believing that confidential means confidential. Uh, I mean, you just need to be able to believe that. And uh, there, there was a mediation session this morning where uh, Terry Salerno was one of the panelists and he talked about the Georgia Supreme Court kind of carving that out a little bit uh, and uh, allowing some confidential communication to be shared uh, in testimony after the mediation. I don't think, based on the statute, that that would likely happen here. Okay, I want to make sure we cover this next topic because it's the subject of so much uh, misunderstanding. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about brackets and how you use brackets and when you use brackets and some of the different kinds of brackets. So I'm not sure who wants to start. I mean, I, I use brackets frequently. I, I like brackets in personal injury cases. I probably use them 80 to 85 percent of my cases. And when I use a bracket, um, typically it's a situation where the parties are a long ways apart, the parties are both baby-stepping, and I get the idea that the defendant is much closer to their uh, final number than the plaintiff is and the parties may be matching, and, and um, if the parties continue to match, my sense is that the defendant will run out of money and there will still be a large gap. So I use it in a situation where there has to be a significant uh, move by a plaintiff, um, and typically what I say is, um, uh, you know, the bracket is obviously the defendant will offer A if the plaintiff comes down to B, and I am one to, uh, permit and frankly encourage counter brackets. Um, uh, 
I am not in favor of the brackets where it's a yes or no, uh, take it or leave it, uh, because I, I, I think that's too heavy-handed on plaintiffs. And uh, if the plaintiffs have the ability to come back and counter-bracket, I think that gives them uh, a greater willingness to enter into the bracketing process. And, um, but of course I have to say, you know, you're going to have to make a significant move here in your counter-bracket uh, in order to keep the defendants at the table. And invariably the, what happens is that there is much, a much bigger move with the plaintiff's counter-bracket uh, than there ever would be in what I refer to as ping-pong negotiations where the parties are just exchanging hard dollar numbers. And so after bracket, counter-bracket, that leaves two brackets, two separate midpoints, and, and then what I typically do is do what I refer to as the Oklahoma round, where the defendant will make um, what what's referred to as an Oklahoma proposal, where um, they will say, well, you know, we'd be willing to pay uh, X dollars. Uh, we're not going to offer it. You've got to get to this number first. But if you plaintiff drop to, to your demand to X dollars, we would reluctantly pay it, and then um, the plaintiff attorney will invariably come back with a, a counter Oklahoma, and then at that point uh, I do whatever I can to try and close the gap to get it to a, a resolution at an agreeable number. But I think brackets are, um, are, are helpful. I, 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 the, the baby stepping process with ping pong negotiations can be very frustrating um, for the attorneys, but more so for the parties who don't really understand the process and generally are not used to or they're not in favor of um, a process that's like going in to buy a used car. And so this is a way to speed up the negotiations to try and get the parties to their best numbers to find out if there's a way to get it resolved. I love brackets. Uh, I, I, I'm always amazed when um, uh, and it, it, it can be the plaintiff's lawyer or the defense lawyer. They will say, ah, it's too early for a bracket. It's too early. Uh, I've used them in the first round. I have too. Um, I, 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 I do not use them, and I tell them, I don't use them to find a midpoint. Uh, I use them to get some movement. Uh, it doesn't do, if, if somebody's at 100000 and somebody's at a million, it doesn't do much good to come down $25,000. Right. Uh, or go up 25,000, but there's not enough time in the day. Uh, so if the plaintiff will say, I'll, I'll, um, I'll come to a million if you'll come up to 500,000, I always ask the other side, if I bring you a bracket, I ask you to please trust me and respond in a bracket. You pick the bracket, but stay with the bracket process for one round. Uh, and usually they'll do that. And let's say they say, well, we reject that bracket, but we'll counter, we'll go to 100 if they'll come down to 500,000. Now, at that point, those brackets have butted up against each other. The bottom number on the plaintiff's 500 is the top number on the defendant's. I don't know why, but when those brackets butt up against each other, or even better, they intertwine with each other. I'll go to a million if you come down to 400, no, but I'll go to uh, 100 if you'll come down to 600. Now they've intertwined, the 400 and the 600. I don't know why, but in my experience, uh, that enhances the chances of that mediation being successful. And you can get out of the brackets whenever you want. I keep telling people, don't look at the midpoint, don't look at the midpoint. 
I know they do. Uh, eventually, I do too. Uh, but in the beginning, it's to just to get that movement, to give people, you got to have some encouragement that you're not just spinning your wheels and that you're here for a reason and so are they. Uh, and uh, brackets sometimes will give you that encouragement. I echo everything that both of them have said about brackets. I've used them since I started mediating in the mid-90s. And I didn't understand then, and I really don't understand now why they work. But I'm here to tell you, if you do them properly, they do work. They're magic. Okay? I'm content with that. Why shouldn't you be? <laughs> They do work, and when I find some commonality in the ranges presented in a bracket and a counter bracket, that may be the first time I've got any sense this thing is likely to sell. You know, uh, they do work. So don't mistrust them. If the mediator suggests them, please listen. Hear the mediator out. If you don't want to use them, don't want to advise your clients to use them, that's your prerogative. But they do work. And I've got a question for both of you. Do you still encounter claims personnel that when you as a mediator suggest, why don't we think about it, talk about a bracket, they say, well, I don't like brackets. I'm not going to do brackets. Yes. Yeah. It's amazing to me yes. that there are still claims people that don't. And I like try and tell them they're magic. Why, they don't buy it. Why do you think there's that reluctance? Because they've used mediators who used bracketing in a way that was not successful. And let's let's take for example, um, there are a lot of ways to, to use brackets. One is, uh, I'm going to go to X um, uh, plaintiff. You have to come down to Y, and that's a yes or no. You either accept that bracket or we're done. That's really heavy-handed, and I don't think that that type of bracket proposal goes over well with plaintiffs and particularly plaintiffs' counsel. They think they're being dictated to. Other uh, ways to use brackets that I think are unproductive is where a defendant says, well, I'll go to X if you go to Y, and the defendant cannot get to the midpoint of the bracket. Like John, like Mike, I tell people when I do bracketing, it's not really a promise that you'll ever get to the midpoint, but I want to know myself that you can get to the midpoint and, and hopefully beyond before I communicate the bracket. But in those cases where someone communicates a bracket and their top number is the midpoint, and then the other side responds with a counter bracket, the only thing that the first bracketing party can do is to go backwards from their midpoint which means that the other party is going to go backwards from their midpoint, and all of a sudden, while the brackets may have brought the parties much closer together, now they're heading in opposite directions, and I think that that's fatal to the process. So I think it may be just using mediators that use poor bracketing strategies. How, you worked right into the next topic, which is what do you do either as the mediator or as a party representative with the difficult people that you sometimes encounter in mediations? I didn't hear her. What do you do with difficult people in mediation? I threaten them. 
<laughs> right. I, I remind myself that five o'clock is not that far away. <laughs> I'm going to go home to my wife, and, and uh, we're going to do something fun. Um, it's part of the process. It's you're going to run into them. And you can't help it. Uh, you should walk in expecting it as a mediator because it it is going to happen. Uh, and I think you just have to. You, you just have to let it bounce off of you, and um, I'm getting better at this. Uh, even the, the wackos, I can find a common ground somehow, and once you can, uh, and they start liking you and trusting you, it, the, the wackiness uh, disappears. Uh, the, 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 oh, oh, I'm so sorry. All that acting out uh, disappears. So you, you got to try to just play up to them, get to know them a little bit, uh, uh, and and oftentimes you'll get you'll get inside of them a little bit, and they'll it'll change. Some of them won't. Some of them are just. I mean, <laughs> you know, John Miller was mentioned earlier, and I say this in every mediation. Um, uh, <laughs> when I, what he used to say was. Um, if you don't get this resolved today, you're going to turn this case over to 12 strangers. And those 12 strangers are going to decide every issue for you and for you. Those 12 people are going to make every decision. And three of them are probably crazy. <laughs> uh, and I remind them that was a long time ago, and it may be four or five now. And you don't want to, you don't want to turn it over to the crazies because when when, when you do, and crazy stuff happens, appeals happen. Uh, they appeal the crazy stuff because they get reversals on the crazy stuff. Uh, and and I think you have to to define what you mean by difficult parties. I, I have two categories. One is. Uh, the, the, the plaintiff, uh, well, it could be a defendant as well, who uh, doesn't um, understand the, the realistic value of the case and has a, a, an unrealistic valuation and it seems to be insistent upon it. And then you have occasionally the attorney, typically from New York or Chicago or uh, somewhere, who is really trying to intimidate you as the mediator. Um, with the uh, intimidating lawyer from out of state, um, you know, I, I, after almost 3,400 mediations, I, I don't get intimidated very easily, and I just tell them, you know, if you want to try and control the mediation, uh, let's terminate it now, and you can control the negotiations going forward. But if you want my help, I'm happy to stay here and help you try and get the case resolved. And if you handle it that way and and don't cower to them, uh, typically they'll they'll back down. Uh, the party that is just uninformed, um, that needs uh, help on the, 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 the realistic value of the case, on a plaintiff side, I will typically get out a sheet of paper and, and, and do hypotheticals and say, okay, what do, you, what do you think this case is worth? And then I'll say uh, to the attorney, what do you think is the verdict range? And, and that puts the plaintiff attorney in a real spot because if he or she has to commit to a range or what's the, the worst case scenario and the best case scenario and then the case doesn't settle and the case goes to trial, 
you know, that attorney could look very, very bad uh, if they don't achieve what they have promised at the mediation. So I typically will get honest answers out of the, the attorneys. Uh, but they don't sit down and talk about, well, okay, now if the case were to settle today, you would save maybe $50,000 in legal fees. We could negotiate the liens down from maybe 100000 or subrogation interest down to much less than that. And I can show them uh, numerically how a settlement at a lower number can put the same dollars in the plaintiff's pocket as a much higher verdict that may be a year or two away given uh, trial dates and appeals and what have you. And so I take a, a, a more uh, a calm approach and, and, and very factual approach and just working through the numbers to try and get those plaintiffs um, who are unrealistic why they have, um, why they should be considering settling uh, on the day of the mediation rather than taking their, their case to trial. With defense claims people who come in, and, um, and we all have seen them before, based upon round tables, they come in and the case, they're going to offer, you know, 30% of what a case is worth, there's not much you can do. And all you can do is say, yeah, I, I think uh, the case, you have, you have more risk than that. And the case probably won't settle here today, but um, keep my number. And if you want me to get back involved later on as the case gets closer to trial, I'd be happy to get back in and negotiate at that time. And, and many times I do get a call back with additional settlement authority after the mediation. Are there questions or, or types of questions that any of you ask in mediation that are sending a signal to the defense lawyer or the plaintiff's lawyer that they should be paying attention to? That they, sh they are paying what? They should be paying attention to. Like, you do, do you oh. ever telegraph something to a lawyer that they need to clue in on? I will occasionally give examples. Um, and, uh, for example, on the uh, def uh, uh, defense side, uh, I'll, I'll tell uh, an example of a story where there was a home run verdict by a plaintiff attorney and, and there, there are some out there where they're reported on the NATA list serve and I, I keep a, a list of all those and I can talk about boy in this soft tissue case a jury came back at you know 20 times uh, medical and you know that's the risk you have of going forward uh, to trial. Uh, you might get that bad ver uh, jury and you could get hit for a number that could even exceed your policy limits and at that point you may have to end up paying more than your limits just to avoid the bad faith action. On the plaintiff side there uh, obviously are cases out there where plaintiffs did not even get their medical bills from a jury and, and you know that's what I do is not talk about um, anything other than real life experiences of prior verdicts where parties did not get validated in the courtroom and I tell even a plaintiff in an admitted liability case there's no guarantee you're going to be validated sure it's absolute liability sure the admitted uh, the defendant admitted liability but there's no guarantee that a jury will validate you with your injuries and your damages and and try and bring home some more realism by virtue of real world stories and real world uh, verdicts there's a lot of ways to telegraph something to counsel without saying it. Uh, and one of the things that, if I have a particularly uh, appealing plaintiff, uh, I will ask defense counsel in the presence of the adjuster, 
I see you took her deposition. How did she do? And I want that. And, you know, the lawyers are usually pretty honest. Well, she did pretty well. And I'd say, would you say she was better than average? Yeah. Would you say that she is probably going to impress some of those jurors? Are you worried about any tears in that jury box during the closing argument? And I'm kind of, hopefully, I'm telling him kind of what I think from what I've seen so far. And so different things like that. And Mike talked about putting down on a piece of paper or blackboarding your damages. Have them put down in front of their client really what they think those damages are. The medical bills, the lost wages, the past pain and suffering, the future pain and suffering, if they've got their permanency. Put it down on a piece of paper where the client can look at it and then ask them, what do you think? You try that case ten times, how many times are you going to win it? I don't care about the amount. How many times are you going to win it? And, you know, now what's 60% of that $100,000? And do the same thing with the defendant. Sometimes it gets them thinking. Not always. I'm occasionally, and fortunately, only occasionally amazed some lawyers refuse to participate in risk assessment. They don't want to be questioned in the presence of their clients at all on the subject of risk. And I've never understood that. I want to say, why are you here? But it does happen occasionally. If you're going to do a good job for your client and have your client feel good about the process, do participate in the risk assessment, even if you sense the mediator perhaps doesn't agree with your assessment. You know, people can do cues for me to tell whether I agree. I'm not that sneaky. But don't show up and refuse to participate in that process. That's what their client is there for. And that may be the only time your actual views that you're refusing to disclose will be believed by your client because they're uttered in the presence of a third-party neutral. And for some reason, they will be deemed to have more credibility than what the lawyer said in private conference with his or her client before they showed up. Amy, we're getting down to the last 10 minutes. Are we going to have a chance to talk about mediator numbers? That was the next thing. So why don't you start us off? Okay. This is important. And I want to ask Mike and John if they're experiencing it more too. When you get to the end of the mediation and they say, this is as far as I can go and this is as far as I can go, and you're at a standstill, one alternative that I am using more and more, and my question to you two is, are you discovering that it's being required more and more to get us? I don't know what it is. I don't know if the world is changing, if people are less trusting, but it used to be that about 10% of my mediations I would use a mediator's number. Now it's at least double that. It's probably 25%. But if a mediator offers you that 
And what it is, is the mediator will send an email to the lawyers and the mediator will say, this is not the number I think this case is worth. This is Las Vegas. This is the number I think most likely both parties will say yes to. And you get 72 hours to sleep on it and you can respond anytime except the first 24 hours. And you either accept it or you don't. If the plaintiff accepts it, the defendant will never know that. Never know that unless the defendant accepts it too. Same way reversed. I looked today before I came out here. Um, I've done it now um, 66 times. And in 62% of those times where everybody has said, I can't move, I'm done, I'm exhausted, it's gone, that's it. In 62% of the time, both parties said yes to the mediator's number. And in the other 38%, uh, I think probably half the time, at least one, or at least half the time, one party said yes. I've had people say no, I will not participate in a mediator's number. And I've said, I won't charge you to do it. I, what have you got to lose? Yeah, and, what's the downside? And, and they'll still say no, but most of them will say yes. And just last week, I was doing a mediation, and two other mediations settled during that mediation because of mediator number responses. And my experience is the same. Uh, I, I was at an International Academy of Mediator Conference in Vancouver about a year and a half ago, and it was interesting because we had a, 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 a breakout session on bracketing, but during the course of that, the, the mediator proposal topic came up, and the moderator asked uh, this group of uh, mediators, uh, how many of, uh, what percentage of your cases are using mediator proposals? The California mediators were generally in the 80 to 90 percent of their cases they use mediator proposals. The Canadian mediators said zero because they believe that it's unethical and takes away from the um, the, the the core principle of mediation, being that uh, the self determination of the parties. Uh, the Midwest mediators who were there, I was there with uh, Jay Doherty from Kansas City and Richard Schur from St. Louis. We were both about 10% at the time. But like Mike, since then, I, I, it's, it's incredible. It's more difficult to settle on the day of the mediation, and I'm having to do more and more mediator proposals, and I'm doing probably 25 to 30% uh, mediator proposals. But I will only do them in cases where I think I have a 50% chance or better of finding a number that both sides will say yes to. So my percentage of, of success is maybe a little higher than Mike's because I will not use them if one party ends at $10 million and the other party's offered $50,000. You know, I just figured there's no way a mediator proposal is gonna work. And that's, that's an extreme example, but, um, but I only do it when I think I have a decent chance of selling a particular number to both parties. And I would guess that 75% of my cases, maybe 80% of my cases, uh, where I do mediator proposals resolve on the mediator proposal. But it's become a very, very, um, I think, uh, productive tool to resolve impasse in cases that didn't settle at the time of the mediation. Excuse me, is that your evaluation of the value of the case or your evaluation of where it might settle? It's definitely the second. It's is there a number that I think will settle the case regardless of my evaluation? But I will tell you that I can't call
call cases at a specific dollar amount i don't think i've ever done a mediator proposal where i didn't think it was a reasonable number but i can't tell you that it was specifically dollar uh the specific dollar of my evaluation of the case i might have been a little bit higher a little a little bit lower but you get a sense having mediated which party or parties might be willing to move less and which parties might be willing to move more and and frankly that has to to, to play some role in the, the determination of the mediator proposal number what are some other ways um, if you've reached an impasse today in the mediation what are some other things that you do after the fact to see if you can help the parties settle i've actually done this during the mediation um, on several occasions, the parties were just way far apart. They were both stalling and showed no open sign of being willing to negotiate further. And I said, how would you feel about we just make a deal? Uh, each of you disclose your absolute best number in confidence to me. I tell nobody about what you've disclosed and we'll have an agreement going into this thing that if those numbers are within x of each other you'll split the difference and settle and i've been amazed how that works people weren't willing to move i can think of one case in particular the case was probably worth two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars i'm guessing it was an injury case and, uh, you know, at the time I had to try this, uh, I think the, the party paying the money was offering like 60000 and the plaintiff was up about 500000 And I said, tell me candidly, write it on a piece of paper, give it to me, and I will keep it in confidence unless the two numbers are within what you've agreed to be the range of each other and in this case they agreed 25,000 was the the range so if the numbers were within 25,000 of each other split the difference and I was flabbergasted when I got their numbers they were within $500 of each other $500 so they split that difference and so uh, that's one thing I've used in the past when I, particularly when I know there's got to be more money to be paid on the one side and a lower expectation on the other side of payment. But they won't tell each other that without a device of some sort. And I've tried that. Uh, we've, we've talked about this before. I've tried that same technique a number of times, and it has never worked. <laughs> and, and I am convinced that in that process, the, the attorneys and the parties are still negotiating with me, and they're not giving me their best number. Now, I do agree. If John has a way to get them to literally give him their best number, their bottom dollar number on both sides, it's a, a, a process that uh, would work, but I've never had that, that ability to convince them to, to, to stop negotiating with me. Sometimes it doesn't hurt to make a follow-up phone call a week after everything has closed out. Uh, I just had one that um, a month after <coughs> the mediator's number failed, 
uh, it's settled. Uh, and it's settled uh, within 10% of the mediator's number. You just need, uh, you just sometimes you need to call them and say, hey, uh, I don't want to be nosy, I don't want to be a pest, but I'm happy to call and see if there's any reconsideration here. And they started talking again, and, and uh, a month later it's done. So you never know. Any last questions? I have no idea why it's named that, but you're both familiar with Oklahoma proposals. Yeah, Oklahoma, that word means different things to different people. Uh, when I first started practicing law, uh, I was dealing with a pretty reputable and very good defense lawyer, and I was representing a plaintiff in an injury case, and uh, uh, we stalled out in our conventional negotiations, he said, John, I'm going to do, do you in Oklahoma. And this is how he defined it. I think if your client would come down to X, I could persuade my client to pay it. That's what I always understood to be in Oklahoma. There are variations, and really they're brackets. tell you that in, in a number of cases the defendant has said nothing more than we have plenty of insurance coverage to pay any judgment or verdict that would occur and on that basis we go forward um, and, and I uh, uh, assume that the representation was truthful um, and, and uh, but, but if it ever came up that well we can't pay that because of the uh, limitations on insurance coverage, at that point I would certainly pull the attorneys together and say we have an issue here and require uh, disclosure of the insurance coverage. But as long as the, the, the defendant carrier, and let's talk about trucking cases, other uh, large commercial uh, cases where there may be a huge CGL policy, uh, as long as they represent that insurance coverage is not an issue, then I, I believe them that it's not an issue. Thank you. Yeah. Last question. How about a nuts and bolts advisory, uh, your typical PI case? What would you like to see as a minimum in order to go into a mediation? Actually, I don't really care. Um, at an absolute, I, I, I'll do mediations where nobody sends me anything, and I'll go in there and do it and, and uh, talk to the parties and caucus. Uh, sometimes in the initial joint session and ask, you know, what does this involve, what are the injuries, and go from there. Um, ideally, though, um, I would get a, a, a short position statement and a copy of the accident report and a summary of the medical bills. Uh, and I also want to know what are the lien and subrogation interests and um, uh, whether there are any causation issues that affect uh, the, 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 the damage issue. But 
I don't need a lot of information. I'm happy to get as much information as the parties are willing to share. But, um, but, but you know, if I had my druthers, a, a short position statement, accident report, um, specials, and uh, 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 itemization of the lien and subrogation interests, I think would be important. Thank you very much for coming.